0: Amen. All right. I am excited to be in church. Hope you are excited as well. I'm excited at the opportunity to preach, um, which, of course, is nothing new to me. I preach my own message back there every Wednesday night when I'm interpreting. Um, somebody said pastor's been talking about people in Proverbs. I don't know anything about that. I just do my own thing over there. I'm kidding. If you can't have fun in church, where can you have fun? I mean, I know, I know who I'm talking to tonight. There's a group of people who love to be in church, uh, and that's encouraging. And I mean, church is the place where we ought to want to be. You could be somewhere worse. um, But I mean, when you think about it, what is the reason of church? Why do do we come to church? What's the whole purpose? I think there's a lot of reasons why you should come to church, but I think one for sure is because it helps you to become more like Christ. And the more that we become like Christ, uh, we become a better version of ourselves. Um, How many of you believe that God has a will for your life? Raise your hand. I think we would all be in agreement for that. Now, don't you think that we should be doing everything in our power to be exactly the person that God desires so that we can fulfill that will? I certainly do, and I know that we would all agree with that. You know, the scriptures tell us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Again, I think we could all agree with that. And since we agree that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, then let me say, don't discount uh, your potential to do great things for God. God has a plan for you that only you can fulfill, and inside of God's perfect plan, you have a purpose, and that should enhearten us tonight. Uh, That makes me happy to know that I have potential, not in myself, but in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a purpose in every sermon. There's a reason for every church service, and a part of that is just so you can add knowledge and wisdom and biblical principles to our life. Why? So that we can reach our full potential for Jesus Christ. Now, how do you become more like Christ? How do you reach that potential? I think that for most people, we never get past the basics, and we struggle sometimes because we never stop to assess ourselves and determine what it is that's holding us back. Now, I'm a very simple person. I think very simple. My messages are very simple. Where somebody else sees a prism of colors, I see black and white, and I like it that way. I like keeping life simple. So tonight's sermon is going to be very simple. In Haggai chapter 1, both in verse 5 and verse 7, we read three words where the Bible says, consider your ways. Now sometimes it's good for us to stop and just to assess where am I in my life? What direction am I going? Look down the pathway of your life just a little bit and see where your current direction is taking you. It's easy to become so focused on what you're doing today that you forget that what you do today affects your tomorrow. In Psalm chapter 51 verse 6, a verse that I have had in my mind for many, many years now. It says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. Now, that's a serious verse. It's a very heavy verse when you think about it. God is saying he wants us to not just be honest before him. God wants us to be honest with ourselves. When considering our ways, we must be willing to do some self-evaluation in order to grow and to reach our potential. Now, the purpose of the message tonight is to cause us to stop and consider and say, you know what, I know God has a plan for my life, but am I reaching my potential? Am I doing what God would have me to do? And as I preach tonight, you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and you be honest with yourself about the direction of your life, all right? But let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, these people that are here. Lord, you know my heart's desire is to be a help and an encouragement to them. Uh, Lord, I know that many of them came here straight from work, Lord. They're tired. I pray that I wouldn't waste their time. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to take uh, some note of where we're at in life, and Lord, that we would uh, draw closer to you through this message, and then we pray, amen. You can turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 13, the book of Genesis chapter 13. Uh, and in a few moments, we're going to read <clears throat> about, um, I guess you could almost call it like a biblical camping story. We're going to see some people setting up some tents, and you know, camping is fun. I enjoy being outdoors, uh, but you know what I hate doing? I hate setting up the tent. They make it needlessly way too complicated. And these ones where it says, oh, three steps and you pop it up, I don't think I trust those. Um, But I don't like setting up the tent. At one time when I was uh, growing up, our church, we had a father-son camping trip just about every year like we do here. And uh, I remember this one specific year. I was still pretty young. uh, We're trying to figure out where we're going to set up camp. And I had the perfect spot. I knew where we were going to set up camp. However, my father did not agree. But I was set on that spot. And I remember my father walking me through all the reasons why my spot was such a terrible idea. You see, my chosen ground was littered with unseen sticks and stones that would uh, assuredly have kept us tossing and turning all night long. And then I also wanted to be very, very close to the fire. I mean, I wanted to feel the heat and hear the crackle from the tent door. Um, But there was a problem with that. As I'm explaining to my father why that's such a good idea... I remember the billow of smoke just kind of came up into my face, and I started blinking really hard, trying to show my father that I was fine. And I probably looked like I was seizing up. I think they sent somebody from Make-A-Wish Foundation to me, but it happened very quickly. And I remember thinking, "Okay, maybe this isn't such a good idea." And then, of course, later on, I then discovered that uh, that low part of the ground was where the dew would all kind of come down in the morning. And so, if I had chosen my spot, I would have ended up probably a little wet the next morning after. So with all of that, thankfully, my father had something that I like to call common sense. may not be so common anymore. Um, I've heard the phrase, common sense is like deodorant. Those who need it the most use it the least. And that is exemplified in one of the sections over here. Now, my father chose a flat, clear area with some nice, plush grass, as much as you could get, and we slept very comfortably. We were dry. We didn't have smoke choking us out throughout the night. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day. It's important where you place your tent. It determines how well you sleep, whether or not you're going to be able to breathe, if your tent's going to burn down, whether or not you're going to be able to stay dry. It's important where you place your tent when you go out camping. Now, the title of the sermon tonight is Pitching the Tent. Pitching the Tent. And I think as we read, you'll understand um, So Genesis chapter 13, if you're not there yet, just look smart. Verse number one, the Bible says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks, and herds, and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar." Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now, in the last several years of learning sign language, there is one thing that I have learned. I like sign language a whole lot better than I like English. On the very first day of the first sign language class I ever took, of course, I'm just an 18-year-old kid. My teacher's first words were, forget everything you know about English. And at that, I said, done. It's forgotten already. Of course, as I say that, I can hear my mother behind me saying, you can't forget something you don't yet know. So with that being said, English has never been my strong suit. I've never been the greatest at English. But sign language I like because it gives you a, a visual meaning that kind of makes it a little bit hard to mistake what's being said sometimes. The sign for pitch as in pitching the tent, could also be the same sign that you would use for establish. And I like the parallel there because it puts things in perspective. Consider that Lot and Abram here, they are establishing their direction. They're showing which way they're going to go. Lot and Abram at this time were what we would consider to be somewhat of like nomads. They wandered from place to place according to God's leading, and they often would just have a natural stopping point to pitch a tent. Now, if you do some research back in these days, a lot of times they would stop after they would come to a crossroads, and they would go maybe a few miles down that crossroads to establish their direction, and then they would set up camp right there. They would essentially establish their direction, and in doing so, it cut down on the need for communication because you're talking about large groups of people. All right. They just followed the person that was in front of them, who followed the person in front of them, and so on and so forth. And so what you ended up having was the father just led the way, and by everyone else following, the family knew which direction they were going. And by him leading the way and the servants and the handmaidens behind them, by following the family, they knew where they were going. Much like when we establish the direction of our life, we are telling our family and all of those around us, this is our course, this is the direction that we're going. Now, Lot and Abram here both had a choice. They're faced with a decision in our passage. Where would they pitch their tent? The road that you take today will most likely determine the road that you will be on tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next. And before you know it, there is a pattern that's being established inside of your life. You're pitching your tent. You are establishing the direction that you're going. You're saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I'm going to be. And with each choice that you make, you are going one direction or another. You say, well, where then are we going? Well, that's the question that we're going to ask tonight. Where are you pitching your tent? Now, like I mentioned, I think very simply, this is going to be a very simple message. This isn't going to be something that you've never heard before, but it's something, like I said, that will help us to assess where we're at in our Christian life. Number one, Pitching the tent of godliness in Canaan. Pitching the tent of godliness in Canaan. Look at verse number 12. It says, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. Now go back to chapter 12 and verse number 8. Speaking again of Abram, it says, And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord." Now go back to chapter 13, verse 4. Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Abram, the friend of God, pitched his tent in a place where he could stay in touch with God, and he could get a hold of God. And so if you want to be a godly Christian, if that's the direction of your life that you want to go, then very simply, you've got to have a walk with God. You have to establish in your direction that you are going to be close to God. And you know, if you keep yourself close to God today, you can go even further tomorrow. You say, how do we become as close to God as Abram? Abram was known as the friend of God. How do you get so close to somebody that God calls you his friend? How is it that you can come to the end of your life being able to look back and see a life that is full of dedication and faithfulness? How do you get to there? Well, I'll tell you how. You go closer to God today, and you establish yourself today so that tomorrow you can go even further, and you can be a little closer to God tomorrow. You see, there are too many people that are looking for shortcuts in the Christian life when there are none. What you have to do is establish yourself today and say, you know, I'm going to hang on to what I've got today, and I'm going to take another step tomorrow. Um, There's a lot of people that through the years I've heard say, well, I'm just sowing my wild oats. And you know, that should never be an option for the Christian because the more time that you spend outside of God's way, then you weaken your potential for God because that is time that is wasted that you can never get back because the longer I am going this direction, it's gonna take me that much longer to get back where I need to be. Now, if we do not establish ourselves today, we cannot expect to have success tomorrow. If you do right today, no matter what, Tomorrow, you'll have an example of victory that you can repeat. Now, when we speak of being godly as a Christian, I believe we need to look at God's very definition of a Christian. And I love these verses. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Now, we stop there. And we all get excited. So we say, thank goodness for the salvation that I have in Christ. And to that, I think we can all agree. But sometimes we leave out the rest of the verse, or at least when it comes to applying it to our lives. It says, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You see, God's very definition of his people is for them to be zealous and doing for him. You say, oh, I'm a godly Christian for sure, Brother Jackson. You know, I would do anything for God. Can I tell you how many times I've gone out door knocking and I've knocked on a door and then somebody answers the door and I approach them about their eternity and I cannot tell you how many times somebody has said, oh, I'm a godly man. It's like, oh, really? When's the last time you went to church? Do you have a Bible in the house? Oh, yeah, it's it's in here somewhere. You see, anyone can claim the name of being godly, but just saying it doesn't make it so. You see, if you want to be a godly Christian, you've got to have a walk with God, but also you have to do something for God. God did not save you to sit on a pew and do nothing. God does not save us to live like the world. You see, godly Christians don't sit around twiddling their thumbs. Godly Christians are doing something for the Lord. Too many Christians have settled for less than best because we simply try to do the least that we can. And that's our sinful nature. We've all got to fight against that. The bare minimum should never be an option. Psalm 39 said, my zeal hath consumed me. I don't know that I see a lot of zealously consumed Christians walking around today in our world. But I pray that that said of our church, I pray that that said of my home, in your home, of your Sunday school class. You see, what you are doing now, today, to set yourself up to serve God with your life, it's going to influence your tomorrow. You're not just going to wake up one day and find yourself serving God. You don't just wake up and on accident find that you've raised a godly family. No, you establish yourself today, and you get some principles in your life today, and you decide, I'm going to serve God with my life, come what may, and what happens tomorrow, well, we'll deal with that tomorrow. We're going to be on fire for God today. You see, people get off of the godly Christian way when they take one day off. And they say, you know what, I'm just not going to establish myself today. Isaiah 59, 17 said he was clad with zeal as a cloak. It surrounded him as much as the clothes that he had on. It was obvious that he wanted to serve God. It was a part of everything he did. It defined him. In James chapter 2:18, it says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. What defines you, Christian? When people see you, do they see a coworker worker who's sold out for Christ? Do they see a classmate who's not afraid to do right? Do they see a family member that's serving God? Or are you the one that's complaining and criticizing and doing the bare minimum? That's not the definition of a godly Christian. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 16 says, Jehu said, come with me and see my zeal for The Lord. Man, I love Jehu. Jehu wasn't perfect, but at least he was zealous to do something for God. He wasn't ashamed of it. He didn't try to hide it. He wanted people to see it. And you know, I believe that a godly Christian, much like Jehu, that is trying to do something for God, will try to get other people on board as well. That's why he said, Come with me. You know, what are we doing here right now with the double portion? What are we doing with our re emphasizing the Great Commission? We're trying to get other people on board. That's what godly Christians do. So if you're going to be a godly Christian, well, you got to do something for God. And thirdly, you must take a stand for God. You must take a stand for God. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. You know, some people will never pitch their tent in the land of godliness because they will live their life being ashamed of their church, their pastor, his vision, The blessings of god your christian heritage your bible and you say oh no i'm not ashamed then why can't you stand up and support it you know a godly christian is going to take a stand for some things because a godly christian is going to be challenged you're going to have enemies in the world that will try to tear you down and if you don't prepare yourself now get ready because it's coming ephesians 6 13 says and having done all to stand stand therefore you know i used to work with a guy who was just a bear to deal with. Nobody up here, nobody up here, don't worry about that. I mean, this guy was grumpy and criticizing everyone. Well, come to think, I'm kidding. <laughs> he was always criticizing everyone. I mean, he walked in the door to work and the whole mood just went whoosh. Well, <clears throat> it was my responsibility as a new hire to load and unload his truck, yay me. And I remember after a couple weeks, I just decided, you know what, I'm not gonna let this guy ruin my spirit. I'm not going to let him make me upset. And he took note of that really quick. And I remember he comes in one day and he puts his finger in my chest and he says, I know what's wrong with you. And I was just like, what's that? He said, you're a Bible thumper. And he started complaining about the fact that I go to church and I didn't do something more useful with my life. To the which I replied, thanks. You know why? Because if he's going to make me synonymous with the Bible, good. We have too many Christians today who were too scared to take a stand. I'll wear that as a badge of honor. It's not a slight. It's something that we should be proud of. Our world is in desperate need of some people who just take a stand for what is right. You're never going to be a successful Christian in life if you cannot stand for what you believe in. Throughout the Bible, growth is always synonymous with being established. That's why the scriptures say rooted and built up in him. You know, I'm sick and tired of Christians who were raised in church who know what's right, and they just refuse to take a stand and obey what they know to be true. You say, how do you become a godly Christian? Well, you walk with God. You do something for God. You take a stand for God. I'm not asking you to be a super spiritual saint that has to show the world how spiritual you are. I'm just asking you to be real. I'm asking you to be godly. Now, I think we all know what it means to be a godly Christian. Secondly, I want to look at pitching the tent of rebellion in Sodom. Pitching the tent of rebellion in Sodom. Look back to verse number 10 of chapter 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and behold, all the plain of Jordan, that was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. You see, Lot got his eyes on the world. Lot started looking at the wrong things. And there's so many people today that are getting their mind on the world. They're talking about the world. They're talking like the world. They're looking like the world. They're acting like the world. And they're doing everything that the world does. And they're setting themselves up to be right in the middle of it. Why? Because they're establishing their direction. They're showing you which way they're going. Now, I'm going to change gears a little bit here, and I'm going to read you some verses from 2 Samuel chapter 16. The Bible says, Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, which he hath left, to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art a board of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong." So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, just to give you a little background on the story in case it evades you, this is when Absalom is trying to steal the hearts of the people in Jerusalem, and he's trying to forcefully overthrow his father so that he can be king. This was an act of defiance by Absalom against his own father. He is saying, Father, you're gone, you're done, I don't need you anymore, and he is in complete, full-on rebellion. And I think it's interesting to note that he did it in the sight of all Israel. You know, it's funny how people aren't ashamed to be seen doing what's wrong anymore. You know, I recently decided my favorite day of the year is July 1st, because it means stinking pride month is finally done. They have parades to flaunt their sinfulness. Now, I don't hate the people, I hate the sin, and the fact that our world has come to a point where we are willing to flaunt that, that, that scares me. But you know what? At the end of the day, despite the fact that all that goes on, and we need not even mention the atrocities of abortion, we know the world is wicked. But I'm not preaching to the world tonight. I'm preaching to the church. The world's going to sin. Sinners will always sin. The Bible tells us it's going to wax worse and worse. But as Christians tonight, sometimes we just kind of sit back and say, man, the world's lost its mind. And as the world becomes exceedingly sinful and wicked, and they become bold in their wickedness, we hide in the shadows, ashamed to be seen doing what's right. And when we start down that pathway of rebellion, what is it that encourages us to set up camp there? What is it that says this is okay? Well, I'll tell you very quickly. First of all, it's the people who influence you. The people who influence you. In the verses that we read out of 1 Samuel 16, it said, Then said Absalom to Ahithophel. Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel told him exactly what to do. He said, I want you to go in, and I want you to desecrate your father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now remember, earlier in Absalom's life, he had done the same thing to his half-sister Tamar. And what do we find that influenced him to do so? But Absalom had a friend. You see, Absalom had a weakness of making the wrong kind of friends, and it led him to a life of rebellion in the book of galatians paul is writing to the church there and he says in chapter 1 verse 6 i marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of christ unto another gospel he's saying hey you had the truth and you let it go you rebelled and then later on in chapter 5 verse 7 he says ye did run well who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth you see paul paul wasn't a dumb man he was very smart Paul knew that somebody was in there planting seeds inside of their ear saying, hey, this is what you need to do. Hey, this is how you need to act. You see, more often than not, the rebellious actions of our life would be isolated if it were not for the people that introduced us to those very acts. You say, yeah, but you know, that's okay. I'm going to be the exception. I can do my own thing. I can let my heart wander, and I'll be okay. I mean, after all, it turned out okay for Absalom. He was the king, right? For two chapters and then later on you find that he's killed by Joab. And I think that paints a a perfect picture of the world. You can be on top of the world for a moment, and then that season, that short time of pleasure comes to an end, and we're left with nothing at the feet of Christ. Be careful who you spend time with. Be careful whose books you read. Be careful who you allow to influence you, because they will either build you up or they will tear you down. If you can't discuss the things of God with them, something is wrong. If you're constantly uh, being forced or around the degrading of your church, then something is wrong. If they're always causing friction between believers, then something is wrong. If what they say does not line up with Scripture, they cannot be trusted. If they're trying to convince you that your pastor is misguided, then I say leave them in the dust because they are convincing you down the pathway of rebellion. Be careful. Be careful. Because your friends can influence you into pitching the tent of rebellion. And I've yet to see someone go down to Sodom and not take someone with them. You see, everyone who travels down that pathway is looking for a traveling companion. And you better be careful because when people rebel against God, they want somebody to justify their sin. And if you're not careful, you're gonna be the one that they take down with them. You see, we try to convince ourselves sometimes, you know what, I'm okay. I'll go back to the right path eventually, but not now. I'll serve God with my life later. I just need to experience a little bit more of the world for myself. I need to please myself now, and then I'll give my life to God later. I'll get serious when I have a family. I'll do it when I'm just a little bit older. You are who your friends are, or you soon will be. That's a statement that was said to me a million times growing up, and I'm not that old, but I've lived long enough to see it be true the people that you allow to influence you, you will become more like them. Hey, we must be warned tonight that the more time you spend on the road of rebellion, the harder it is to come back. The further you go, the longer the journey to make things right. The more that you establish yourself in the way of rebellion, the harder it is to uproot and get right with God. Now, I'm thankful that we have a God who is only ever a prayer away, but may I say, don't play with God's mercy. Don't try to take advantage of God's grace, because to this day, the Bible is still true, and it is still a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know, I do not think that the danger is in our co-workers necessarily. We know that they're going to do sinful things. We know what they do on Friday nights. We know the things they listen to and the relationships that they have. I don't think that's so much the danger to the Christians here tonight. But there is nothing as dangerous as a bitter Christian. Now, in the story of Absalom, he had Ahithophel giving him unwise counsel. Now, previously, Ahithophel was known for being the wisest person in the land. I mean, he even advised King David. But that does not mean that he was perfect. When Ahithophel turned his heart away from God, he was the greatest source of bringing on the rebellion in the life of Absalom. You see, Absalom was weak, and Absalom was prey for anyone who would convince him to rebel. You see, the danger lies in those whom we give influence in our lives, and we don't even realize sometimes that they're pulling us toward rebellion. How do we end up in rebellion? Well, it's the people who influence you. And secondly, it's the separation from God's people and God's man separation from God's people and God's man you see if Absalom would have realized David only wanted what was good and right and best for him this probably never would have happened but Absalom never learned to respect those in authority over him in fact even in our uh, text verse that we read about Abram and Lot in Genesis 13 11, it says and they separated themselves the one from the other you see Lot had a chance to stay with the only one who had ever led him to do right and he chose to leave him now, I just tend to believe if Lot had stayed close to Abram and he had made that an important part of his life, then he probably wouldn't have ended up in Sodom. If you always find yourself complaining about authority, disrespecting the pastor, or running away from other church members, you've got to be careful because you're starting to pitch that tent of rebellion. When you disassociate with God in your personal walk with him, it's only a matter of time before you disassociate with his man and his people. The people above you, people around you, hate you tell you this, but they're flawed. They're not perfect. But that doesn't give you grounds to criticize another Christian. You say, oh, Brother Jackson, I'll never be in Sodom. I'll never live in rebellion. I'll never go there. I'll never do that. But you could. And it starts with little things like criticism and bad influences. You see, these two typically go hand in hand with one leading to the other. Don't pitch the tent of rebellion in Sodom. And my third and last point is this, and this is probably the one that scares me the most. Pitching the tent of compromise in the plains. Pitching the tent of compromise in the plains. Look at verse 12. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. You see, Lot, at this point, is not yet in Sodom. He's not in Canaan. He's not really deep in sin, but he's not living a godly life either. And if we're not careful, we're going to fall into the trap of living somewhere in the middle, a life of compromise. Now, I don't have any respect for a fence-sitting compromiser. At least somebody in rebellion, they're being honest with the world. I can at least respect that a little bit because they have some honesty. But somebody who's going to compromise, it's hard to get along with them. How do you know you're heading into compromise? Well, a couple things. First of all, your actions have no meaning. Your actions have no meaning. You see, you're not out living a wicked life, but you've settled for less than God's best. You're not reaching your potential. You're not sold out. You're struggling somewhere in the crossroads trying to decide if you want to pursue God's will, if you're going to chase your own dreams. You see, when church becomes dry and you start looking for other things to please you, you start to compromise. When you go through the motions with no heart, giving only lip service to God, you're setting yourself up to compromise. Christians who were once independent, fundamental Baptists now fill the pews of churches whose names don't even make sense. Like High Point, Elevation, I don't know if those are any actual churches, but I mean, I can't tell if it's a church or a cannabis dispensary. What is, but how do you go from strong preaching to a limp-wristed TED Talk? How do you go from working in the bus ministry to the worship team? How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happens at some point. What you do in church just stopped meaning something to you. You lost heart. And you started slipping away and you started going the wrong direction. But once your actions have no meaning, the next step is inevitable. You start to substitute the fundamentals. You substitute the fundamentals. You say, but I have a desire to do what's right. I want to do God's will. I want to serve God. You know what? That's awesome. And that's where it starts. And you know what? I have a five, six-week-old son. I don't keep up with the weeks. I could wake up every morning and tell my wife, I wanted to help you out last night with the baby. Wanting to do it doesn't make any difference, does it? There's a lot of people who want to serve God with their life, and they never put anything more than a desire to it. Psalm 27.4 says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. If you only have a desire to do what's right, and you never act on it, you're in a dangerous place, and I'll tell you why. Satan can falsely fulfill your desires to do right. He's very good at it. He's been doing it for many years. He'll pacify that desire, and you'll settle for less than God's best. You see, there's this thing out there today that's called Christian music. What is that? That's people who don't want to listen to the things of the world but they certainly don't want to listen to the old hymns either. So they have the world's tune, and they just add some Jesus words into it. And I can tell you this, contemporary Christian music, I think, has long been used by Satan to stunt the growth of many Christians. Your music says a lot about who you are. And then the devil will give you some Christian friends. Sure, they go to church, and they act like the world, though. They have hashtag Jesus follower on their social media profile, but are they actually helping you become a stronger Christian, or are you just pacified with the thought that, well, they told me they go to church? We have Christian service. There are people who will go and build an orphanage in Africa in the name of Christ and not give those orphans the gospel. Now, they pacify their desire to do right, but are they really serving God? You can... Have Christian dress, but just because you wear a t-shirt that says blessed doesn't change the fact that it could be immodest. You can add a cross to your jewelry, but it doesn't make it appropriate for a man. You see, the deciding factor between a compromiser and a God-fearing Christian is whether or not you act on the call of God to follow his will or you settle for just being pacified in your desire to do right. Modern day Christians have spent far too much time doing what we're told to or expected to do. We've leaned on the convictions of grandparent, Sunday school teacher, pastor. And it's time that as Christians, spiritually speaking, we grow up, we stand up, and we get some convictions of our own and establish ourselves today to do what is right. It's time to become who God wants us to be. You know, my children need me to be established in the right way. Your, maybe your family needs you to be established in the right way. Have you ever considered the fact That it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Um, As far back as I can tell, I'm a fifth or a sixth generation Christian. That's great and that's awesome. But my family is one generation away from being as lost as Adam's house cat. I mean, we could, if I don't do right, if I don't establish myself and say, I'm not going to compromise then it could be that my children don't grow up in church. And then my grandkids, their only hope might be that a bus worker comes and stops at their door. God forbid that happens to any of us because we didn't establish ourselves to do right. There are bus kids who will someday ride the bus and come to church to hear for the first time that Jesus loves them, and they're depending on you not to compromise, so you'll go work that route. So you'll give money to help us buy the buses. There are missionaries who will never be sent. There are preachers who will never answer the call. There are teachers who will never stand before a class And a generation that will be lost if we do not establish ourselves in the way of right and refuse to compromise. You know, I've got a goodly heritage. But to whom much is given, much is required. There's too much at stake for me to waste my life doing less than God's best. I don't want to live in the plains of Sodom. I don't want to be somewhere in the middle. I don't want to be lukewarm. So, with that being said, I'm going to Canaan. I want to live in the land of godliness. Now, what's keeping you from moving out of the plains and into Canaan? C.T. Studd, the famous missionary to China, said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You got one shot. One chance to make your life count for Christ. Are you setting yourself up to serve God today with the decisions that you're making? Will you live a life of rebellion against God? You know, we know the story of how Sodom and Gomorrah ends. We know how God destroys it. Scripture even warns us that the way of the transgressor is hard. And I, and I would hope that this is a preventative maintenance sermon. I don't think we have anybody here that's rebelling against God. If so, you probably wouldn't be here. But take this to heart. Lot had every reason to do right. But you know what? Lot was close to people who knew God, but he was not close to God himself. Let that sink in. He was close to people who knew God. He was not close to God himself. Sometimes we attend church. We're best friends with the Sunday school teacher. We love the pastor. We pat him on the back. We do everything that we can, and our hearts are far away. It's not good enough to be close to people. We've got to be close to God. Will you live a life of compromise, settling for less than God's best? Sometimes we need to self-evaluate. Maybe there's an area of your life where you're starting to slip. Could it be that you just need to course correct a little bit? To be honest, the way of the compromiser and the way of the rebellious is a road that merges together. It's just a matter of time. People are depending on you to do right. So you can waste your life or you can live as a godly Christian. God has a plan for you. Don't mess it up. Reach your potential by deciding to do right today. So here's the question. Where are you pitching Your tent. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, you know my heart. I desire to be a blessing.